Welcome to The Conscious Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Alex Raymond. This is the only podcast that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. Now, I know that being an entrepreneur is a long journey and it can be really tough. So on this show, we won't be sharing generic hero stories or talking about mythical unicorns. Instead, we'll get straight to the heart of what matters most, giving you tools and resources to grow, thrive, and succeed as an entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with incredible founders, CEOs, coaches, and authors to help you be more resilient and inspired as you build the business of your dreams. I don't know about you, but I've found myself looking for happiness in all the wrong places, so to speak. As an entrepreneur, I always thought that happiness was just one step ahead of me. Oh, if I do this, then I'll be happy. If I raise money, then I'll be happy. If I get this version of success, I'll be happy. If I sell my company, I'll be happy. And I always was looking for happiness externally, as though it was something outside of myself and it was something that was going to be happening in the future. And it turns out that's totally the wrong way to look at happiness. What we do in today's conversation is we take a deep dive into what we can do internally to Build the muscle of happiness. And there are nine practices that my guest Ashish Kotari recommends to help increase our awareness of happiness and give ourselves, frankly, permission to be happy. And so this episode is really going to change how you think about happiness. And you're going to understand that a lot more of it is in your control as opposed to being things that you are purely at the mercy of externally. So I hope you enjoy this discussion with Ashish, who is the founder and CEO of Happiness Squad and wrote an incredible book called Hardwired for Happiness. Check it out. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Conscious Entrepreneur and Ashish Kotari. Man, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming to join us today. Alex, it is such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing around conscious entrepreneurs and supporting our entrepreneurs. Thank you so much. Now, Ashish, you are the founder and CEO of the company Happiness Squad. You also run a podcast called Happiness Squad. You also are the author of the book Hardwired for Happiness, which I have right here and which I've read. So happiness is obviously top of mind for you. Tell me about your motivation to devote your life to happiness? Thank you, Alex. Great question. Um, so after a 25-year career in consulting and 17 of those as a partner at McKinsey, I get this question a lot. Why did you decide to leave and become an entrepreneur? And second, why did you decide to focus on happiness, right? Like I'm like, it's it just feels so throwaway, right? Like happiness. Yeah, we all want to be happy, but why build something on happiness? And my answer is the following, Alex. Happiness, the other word for happiness is human performance. Think about when do you operate at your best? Is it when you're stressed, anxious, resentful, angry, sad, depressed, feeling lonely? Or is it when you truly are happy? You truly are content. You're living into a bigger why. To me, happiness is human performance. And the data is so clear from the science of happiness, right? That at individuals, if we can teach people to be happy, they are more successful, more productive, 
more creative, more innovative, are kinder, are more resilient. Who doesn't want that? And if we can help leaders build organizations that flourish, those organizations are have 2x higher stock market returns. They are more productive. They're more profitable. They have 65% lower attrition. So for me, my work around happiness and this work that we're doing, our mission is to help a billion people democratize happiness, truly integrate the science and art of happiness into our day-to-day lives. Because we need to do that in order to rise to the challenge of our times, to create businesses that heal, that do good in the world, um, and create environments where people can thrive. That's the reason why happiness. And, uh, you know, I say, you know, people pursue happiness as an end through all the hard work, sacrifices, etc. I'm like, why don't, why not go at it directly, right? Why not actually make happiness be the means through which any end you want becomes easier to get? You're so right. And, and, uh, I appreciate you bringing up the point that happiness is linked to human performance. Cause if I'm feeling miserable, if I'm down in the dumps, if I'm irritated or anxious or fearful or whatever it is that's going on, I'm not going to be showing up as my best self. I'm not going to be giving it my all. I'm not going to be, uh, kind of performing, right? As you were saying, I'm not going to be performing at my optimal best. And so what you're saying is let's get the internal stuff working first before we go out and do the external. I know you talk a lot about happiness being an internal game. It absolutely is, Alex. And I think it's imperative. It's not a nice to have. It's actually a must have. And, you know, it goes back to, and I'll give you the reason why. Look, we see the world as we are, not as the world is. The beautiful words of a nice nin. And it is so true. You know, we constantly see the world based on our beliefs, beliefs about others, beliefs about ourselves, beliefs of what's right, beliefs of what's wrong. Everything is shaped by that. So there is one reason why we need to actually start within because, you know, um, we are, we'll only react to kind of what become aware of. But there are two other big reasons for this, Alex. One is let's look at it from an evolutionary biology point of view. Look, our brains evolved and we grew to be the, you know, at the top of the food chain, not because we were the strongest or we were the largest, but because of our unbelievable brains and their ability to predict danger and to prepare us to respond through, you know, adrenaline and cortisol, the fight, flight, freeze response that we all know to threat. Also a very heavy negativity bias. Things that could hurt us, we paid way more attention than things that, you know, anything that was kind of okay, we just kind of moved past, right? We have fixed attention spans. All of that was wonderful for, you know, millions of years of existence as we evolved. But think about what's live, what the world we are living in right now, Alex. There are no tigers and lions roaming around in our day-to-day environments for which our brains have evolved over so long to predict. But what we do have is a world where every day we face threats to our psychological identity and our brains have no way to differentiate. And they act in ways that actually in physical threat are incredibly helpful, right? Blood rushes to the sides. We are ready to prepare. Anything other than the threat basically grows out from our main focus. 
in psychological threats, we actually need just the opposite. The threat is rarely a threat. 90% of what we fear doesn't come true, but we lose perspective of everything else and what's happening. So we literally, you know, Daniel Goleman's work on the amygdala hijack, when we need our cognitive best, we actually get dumber by almost 30%. So that's the second reason why we need to start at a neurological level. We need to start from our wiring for fear, which is what my book was about. Mm-hmm. And only through that work can we actually start to do something that, uh, you know, I know this is a question you always ask around consciousness. Only through that can we elevate our consciousness. And what do I mean by that is truly elevate our ability to hold complexity. Because the world we are living in is more complex than us. And that's what's causing the constant triggering of threats to our psychological identity. Right? So it's not just enough to kind of rewire away from fear, but it is also important to actually increase how we see the world, how we navigate in a complex world versus a complicated world. And this is all the amazing work around, uh, you know, this is all the amazing work. There's 20 years of research from Harvard around adult development theory that is never taught. Um, but yeah, that's the reason why we got to start inner because without that behavior change will not happen. We will continue to take action from a place of scarcity, from a place of self-protection, from a place of not feeling enough, we have to change from within. Let's talk about your book. I really want to get into that. Uh, I, yeah. I, have, I have my copy right here, Hardwired for Happiness, Nine Proven Practices to Overcome Stress and, and Live your, your Best Life. And so you created this and you've got You've got a bunch of data and and thoughts in here, and then you've got your nine practices, and they're all organized around that sunflower. And yes. the core of the sunflower is what you call cultivate self-awareness. And uh, I found that so interesting when I saw it because self-awareness is a foundational part of the Conscious Entrepreneur, and it's something that I talk about a lot. In fact, at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit in this past June – you know, I talked number one about fearless self-inquiry as a way to drive self-awareness. So seeing you yes. put that at the center of the sunflower was was really meaningful to me. The other things that you have in there are things like define your define your purpose, uh, embrace mindful living, practice gratitude, master your emotions, uh, fuel up with compassion, invest in well-being build a community, and live with intention. So there's a lot of stuff here. Uh, nine is a big number. It's hard for people to keep nine things in their head at any one time. Uh, but how did you come up with this? How did you come up with this model? And how did you start to create you know, the rest of the ideas that go around to support them? Because each one of these in the book has got examples, and it's got meditations, it's got journaling prompts, and it's got science to to back it up. So tell us a little bit about the overall model here, here, and then we'll get into some of the specifics. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you, Alex. So yeah, look, uh, I would love to say that I sat down and I in, you know, and I kind of deductively arrived at it. It was not. I did do my reading, right? Nothing happens without preparation. So I did actually read over 500 books. I'm on my 625th. We published the book a year ago. Um, I read over 500 books across the spirituality, psychology, neurosciences, and philosophy. And I have to tell you a funny story. And many people find it surprising. 
I was the title of the book was actually not Hardwired for Happiness till it came back from the editor. I, my work was not about happiness. And in a way, it's actually funny because you can't pursue happiness. That's one of the core elements of the science of happiness. If you pursue happiness, I can guarantee you, you'll be unhappy. Happiness only ensues from living a virtuous life, from living a life, right? Where, you know, you never look at the sun directly as uh, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar says, you have to, you have to see the colors. These are nine practices are those nine colors for me that make up happiness. The book was actually called originally From Fear to Freedom, A Journey from Within to Live Your Best Life. And really, that's what I was searching for was what actually keeps us stuck in uncomfortable places, uncomfortable jobs, relationships that sometimes too long, that have no longer kept our nurturing, right? But they're draining us. We know we need to shift, but we are stuck. We can't. And I was curious about that. What keeps us stuck? And that's why, Alex, now it makes sense. Awareness was at the heart of it. Like what keeps us stuck is what keeps me stuck versus you stuck. And why in this job you love it and I hate it has nothing to do with the job. Has nothing to do with the person. It has to do with me. And that's where awareness came in. Um, then I realized in my journey that the other important nugget was the gravitational pull of what we have, because we are so risk averse, right? When you want to transition to anything else, the pull towards that will be lower than, you know, the push towards that will be lower than the pull we have of current state. Don't do that. You already have a job. You're a partner. You're making seven figures. You want to go do something else. You think you're going to be successful? Oh my God, no way. Look at how hard it is. I realize it is the power of purpose that can create a higher gravitational pull that frees you from gravity of earth, from current state, right? So that's where purpose came in. Um, and that was kind of similar was the origin of so many of the other practices, Alex, right? Gratitude was about overcoming our brain's negativity bias. How can we consciously tune into the abundance that we have? Somebody asked me, I, I always, people when ask me, how are you? I always say I'm awesome. And I say it truly with a big smile. And then they say, why are you awesome? What happened? I said, nothing. I woke up. I'm alive. I'm breathing. I'm walking. Do you know how many people didn't do that today? I mean, the chance that I'm breathing and alive gives me an opportunity every minute to do something, right? Do something of value, make a difference, change if something isn't right. We all are going to die one day. So it's these practices that each one of them was designed to help people shift away from things that hold them back into living in unison. And if we do this, happiness ensues. And that was kind of my editor when she kind of read through it. She said, you know, Ashish, what you are talking about is happiness. And it's you don't explicitly call it out, but that's what your book is about. And and that's how we changed it, right? That became hardwired for happiness. And you are right, Alex. There are nine of them. You don't need to do all nine. Even one or two practices can be transformative if we really master them. But the key is this, Alex. 
The key is not knowing about them. This is probably, I don't know, one of 10,000 books on happiness. All of them have the science behind it. You know, some have less of it, but I actually did my research. You know, as a McKinsey consultant, you're taught facts, science, right? So even though these practices are in every wisdom tradition, there is strong science behind every one of them. And I dug, and you really dug in to both the neuroscience and psychology fields to validate that. But really, the, the work we are doing at Happiness Squad and friends, if you read the book or if you check out the programs we're creating, I say this to you. We are drowning in knowledge. This is one of the 10,000 books out there. Knowledge is not a problem. We are drowning in knowledge. We are parched for practice. We find no time in our busy lives to practice. And so my invitation is the following. Even if you took one practice, like the practice of gratitude, or the most profound of the practices, awareness, knowing yourself, right? I mean, that's a lifelong journey and maybe beyond, Alex, as so many of us know. But gratitude is something we can practice every here and now. In eight weeks, if you practice every day, you will notice you will feel a lot more happier. You will feel a lot more stress, a lot less stressed, a lot more connected because you'll start to fundamentally change the neural wiring of your brain. Which of the practices that trip people up the most? So, so we know that self-awareness is like this big, you know, big, hairy, kind of complicated one. Uh, where are the ones that, that people you find struggle? I'll tell you the ones that I, you know, it's, it's what I struggle with the most and I know what most people struggle with. It is mastering your emotions. And the reason it is, is first of all, right? Happiness is not about avoiding suffering. Happiness doesn't mean you're not going to have suffering. You're not going to face anger, anxiety, fear, resentment, shame, guilt. And the reason this practice is so hard for people, Alex, is for a couple of reasons. The first is we are taught, first of all, we don't want it, right? Even at a core level, we, we crave things that make us feel good. And we are averse. We run away from things that we don't like. And our reaction when we see them is either we numb it or we get so upset and we act it out. So that's kind of deep in it, right? As we all, as every human, we want to be happy. There is nothing we do because it brings us suffering. Even if we suffer now, we do it so we'll be happy later. No way if you right, suffer just for the sake of suffering. So we don't like suffering. So that's the first reason why people struggle with it. The second is the energy that many of these carry, these emotions. The reason we struggle with them so much is they have such a strong charge. Anger is an outward energy burst. Shame and guilt is an inward. We want to just cover ourselves up. I mean, it is so strong. And in that moment, we forget that we are more than our thoughts and we are more than our emotions. So there is this fundamental, you know, till we actually practice over time, being able to be with this difficult emotion, witness it, take care of it like we would our, our daughter or son or a loved one when they are suffering. Just be with it till we learn to be with it. Not try and fix it, not try and numb it, not try and act out. It is not easy. So that is the hardest practice. Personally, for me, that's the one, you know, that I, that I struggle with the, the most. And by the way, it comes up 
for something that you care about the most, right? For me, like my son, I care deeply about my son. And I'll just tell you, I'll be vulnerable, right? I'm not perfect. Far from it. I've been doing this every day. I have a lot of practices I do every day. My son said to me uh, on dinner two days ago, you need to go see a therapist for your anger. And he was, you know, like, he was like, literally, he's 13 years old. He's like, you need to go see a therapist. And it's not that I'm shouting my anger at, you know, if you ask 99 out of the 100 people I talk to, they're like, you're the happiest person I know. But when it comes to interactions with him, I get often triggered, right? He's a 13-year-old. I have to remind myself continuously using the nine practices how little time we have together left. And that's not how I want to show up. And yet, with that intention, with that understanding, sometimes anger takes over. Now, through the practice of compassion, I am able to go back and say, listen, I, I am sorry. I'm able to apologize. I'm able to role model that we don't need to be perfect. That doesn't need to be perfect. Uh, and we can work through that, right? But yeah, I fall into that trap more often than I would like to. And every day when I wake up, I have a meditation practice and I intend my last five minutes are all about setting the intention of how can I be just loving today with him? How can I be more patient with him, loving with him? But it takes work. And yet I trip. Uh, it's it's so interesting to to hear you talk about that. You know, uh, in the in the mindfulness community and the consciousness community, there's there's this idea which is totally false that being happy or being mindful is all about not having emotions, as opposed to feeling them and letting them run through. And and you know, uh, you know all this data here that emotions typically last what like ninety seconds or one hundred twenty yes. seconds. It's so it's a chemical cocktail that floods through your body. If you resist it and repress it and fight with it and pretend it's not there, then it's just going to stick around for longer. It's going to get stuck in your body. It's going to stuck, get stuck in your psyche. If you can feel it, acknowledge it. Some people recommend naming it, right? Or sort of yes. talking to it, for example. Uh, then what? Then it can do its thing and be on its way and you can get back to doing whatever you've been doing. Absolutely. And you know, there is one practice. It's actually a micro practice, Alex, um, in, in this program we have created that rewire. By the way, so that's what we did, by the way, with the practices, right? To bridge the knowing to doing divide, because I know how busy we are. And that's the reason we don't do it. We literally went back to the neuroscience of habit formation to create five minute micro practices. And most of them are actually not doing different things, but doing things we already do differently. So they all can be integrated in five minutes or less in our days. And there is one practice that actually can help us increase the space, right? Because Viktor Frankl said it, between stimulus and response is a space. In that space is our ability to make a choice to act differently. There is a practice that I found to be incredibly powerful that five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, if we actually grow that habit, it can give us more space. And that's this meditation I learned from this Indian mystic Sadhguru, which is around, you are not, I am not my body. I am not even my mind. And it's this ability to sit with that and with that mantra, find and see if we can create a distance between the thoughts that are emerging and what are the feelings. And 
what I found is if we do this consistently, and I've seen it myself, you know, my time, my ability to respond has actually gone up. And they have done extensive research around this practice and it helps others too, right? So it's actually, again, scientifically backed. That's a big deal for me. Everything we do, I want to make sure that there is a clear science backing, either in terms of the practical, people have tried it, they've experienced a difference, but even better if we can tie it to actually changes in our neural structures. So that was, I am not my body. And then the second part is, I'm not, I am even, not my, even my mind. My mind. So who am I, right? The tuning into this question, tuning into the consciousness in which our thoughts arise, our feelings arise, being able to notice just that and say, who's the one noticing? Who knows I'm having a thought? Who is experiencing this? Just tuning into that, not naming it as God or universe or soul or forget about all that. Just start to see that you, the witnesser, is different than what's being witnessed. Because if we do that, over time, we can start to stop using words like I am angry and start saying, I feel angry. We start to create space. I know that for Ramana Maharshi, for example, simply asking the question, who am I, was one of the most profound. Absolutely. Who am I beyond the titles, the names, the roles, the professions, the color of the skin, the nationalities, right? It's a deep, 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 deep question. Yeah. Who am I? And so you had a serious who am I uh, series of questions, I guess, when you went from uh, you went from good student in India to going to IIT in, in, in Mumbai to then saying, all right, I'm going to the States and I'm going to work for IBM. And then I'm going to go get an MBA and work at all these fancy consulting places and be a, go to McKinsey, obviously well-known, big, fancy company. I'm going to become a partner there. Uh, so even more elevated. And so you have yep. a certain identity around that. Who are you? You are a successful businessman, you're smart, you're good at math, you've got all these sort of labels you're attaching yourself to yourself, and then you become a husband, you become a father, you know, all this, all these things are floating around for you. So you have all that in your history, in your psyche, in terms of defining who am I. Mm -hmm. And according to what I, what I've heard, and I want to hear directly from you, but according to what you've got in the book, you know, you then find yourself working 100 plus hour weeks, traveling all over the place, not feeling fulfilled, not feeling excited, not feeling like you're doing what you're meant to be doing on this earth. Dare I say, those all sound like symptoms of burnout and therefore really questioning who you are. So I want to know, and I'm curious because a lot of people that we talk to in the entrepreneur community go through major career and life transitions just like this. Yes. But walk us through that transition and, and, and how you did it and, and what you learned about yourself along the way. Yeah. Great question, Alex. Uh, thank you. So look, I think for me, it came actually at a very interesting place in my life, Alex. Um, you know, I love the firm. McKinsey, I still, you know, it's funny, even a year in, it was one year, uh, August 30th was my last day at the firm last year. And I still refer in the we, and we still refer to, in fact, I'm actually leading a program next week with, uh, with a group of amazing women, um, at McKinsey, uh, next week. I love the firm. I loved the clients. I loved the platform it gave me. 
Because, you know, for me, my core had always been about relationships and I had all the resources in the world to be able to help people. What I didn't love was the actual function that, you know, my specific expertise in that, right, which was all around operations at that, which is interesting. It's an interesting link because, you know, I I'll, will come back to what I'm doing now and how all of that that I didn't love is actually helping me do this work in such a different way and articulate it indifferently. But back then, I was 42 and 43. Everything, Alex, was green in my life, right? You know, um, Matthew McConaughey talks about green lights. Everything was green light. Family was doing great. We were living in Boulder. I was heading a practice. Parents were good. Client platform was great. I was rocketing my way up. You know, I was two years away from senior partner. Everything was green. Everything. And yet, every morning, Alex, every morning, I was waking up with a high degree of anxiety Many days, like literally my knees up to my chest, feeling like I needed to throw up. I would have this like real bile feeling of like, right. And I, and, and it was debilitating in the morning. Once I started going, it was fine. But every morning I would wake up with this and I didn't know why. Like, what am I worried about? What am I anxious about? What am I like? Because there was nothing like it wasn't I was worried about my clients were going away or projects weren't going well or I'm having relationship troubles or I just got like a, you know, a debilitating disease diagnosis. Nothing. Many people said, go see a therapist. Somebody said, oh, yeah, this is anxiety. It's very, it's very normal. It's very normal to be anxious. I'm like, just go. You know, I, I went to this guy and he gave me this pill and now I feel great right? Pop a pill, go talk to a therapist. And I'm like, dude, there is, you're not hearing me. I've had no trauma in my past, at least back then that I was aware of. And there is nothing out there that I'm wondering. I'm like, what am I going to talk to the therapist about? Like, I have to tune within. I have to find the answer within, Alex. And that's when, you know, it's a little like when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And for me, those teachers came in the form of these two amazing women. One was at McKinsey, Joanne Lebois. The other is Amy Fox, Amy Elizabeth Fox, the CEO of Mobius. And they had created a program that truly allowed me to go inwards. A week away from devices in Portugal in one of the oldest monasteries. It was a McKinsey-sponsored program. And it was allowed me in that week to really go deep, really go deep into who am I? Why do I feel the way I did? And more importantly, I also learned a set of tools for the first time in 18 months, Alex. I woke up on the third day with no anxiety. No pill needed. No therapist needed. I didn't feel anxious. But that week also tuned me into what was my core essence and what was I born in earth to do? Right. What was my highest purpose that I could live into? My why? And I recognized three things that, that week. The first, I recognized that for me, my life had all been about relationships. You know, what had kept me at McKinsey? That fear that kept me and like what kept me? No, no, no. But where are you going to find it was relationships. You know, I'm the crazy guy who sends 875 personalized emails last year at, uh, at holidays. Um, 
because they are people whose lives we walked in and they're all, they're still a part of me, right? We've done projects together. We've done teams together. Clients have served. Relationships were my essence. So it had to be something about that. The second was I was realizing for the first time, you'll be surprised by this. There's a lot of very people who are. Despite being born in India and having lived in India for 22 years, the first time I meditated was in Portugal with two white women. Right. So meditation, which many people say, of course, you meditate. You're from India. I'm like, <laughs> don't go by the cover of the book. Don't go by the color of the skin. That is not. In fact, I actually had rejected a lot of the beauty in the Indian culture and the spiritual traditions because of what I just saw, how religion was practiced. I threw out spirituality, baby with the bathwater. Right. Um, and the third was I looked around, Alex, and I realized it was not just me. There were 30 people who had walked into that room, all smiling outside, talking about the amazing clients and the work and the houses and the trips and blah, 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 blah. Every person there was facing a struggle that they kept within, didn't feel open, didn't feel resourced. And to me, that was my three things that came together. And I committed that week, Alex, that I was going to spend the rest of my life learning as much that I could about the art and science of flourishing. I was going to become a student and I was going to create something that I could meet people where they are and help them transform themselves. Because if they transform themselves as leaders, the impact they would have in the world of transforming lives and transforming the planet would be there. And that was my, that was my who am I and my why that led to all the work we're doing now. And so that, that hits really well on, on practice number eight, which is building a community. So you said it wasn't just you. There were 30 people in that week-long session in Portugal. So all of a sudden you're realizing, hey, I'm not alone here. There are other people who are interested in this. And this links in directly with the conscious entrepreneur community. And one of the things yes. that people value the most is, hey, wow, we're all going through this together. We're all realizing how difficult it is or what the challenge is and the things that are coming up. And so the parallel to the McKinsey crowd is very similar there. People saying, hey, I look successful on the outside and I'm ticking all the boxes and things are green lights, as you just said, but inside I'm still feeling a lot of anxiety or stress or friction. How can we deal with that? And it is so powerful to start there, Alex, right? And the amazing work you're doing with the community. Because my friends, I'm going to give you an analogy. Think about this. Only difference, right? And such a big difference it makes. If you think about it's the consciousness, the seed of consciousness, the place from where a leader leads that makes the difference between does the company grow up to be a gap or Patagonia? They are both in the apparel business. They are both in the apparel business. They are both consumer brands. They're both profitable, right? It's not one is not for profit and the other is for profit. But yet, the output they create and the impact they have and how successful they are is because of that consciousness of the founder. And that is the power of community. Collectively together, there is an opportunity for us to rewire Away, you know, because if we don't do the work, we can talk all day long, you know, Alex, about conscious capitalism and 
let's let's run our businesses to do good and make the profit be kind of you know a side effect this you know yeah profit arises but we are here to change lives that is not possible if you're stuck in scarcity you're stuck in fear you're stuck in anxiety it's not you possible just can't get we there. have you just to can't start do it. you can't get there you know we talk about hey psychological safety be vulnerable if you're afraid you're not going to be vulnerable right we tell people hey you know take care of your health if you're not well physically mentally spiritually you know how important as a founder it is to do that to achieve you will not spend the time even if it is 5 minutes meditating or working out for 45 minutes because the fear of not being able to deliver one extra hour i can put into the business right now is going to make it more successful this whole health thing i can live into this later without that at the heart is not possible that consciousness truly being able to rewire where we see the world as a place of abundance versus scarcity where we see the world as a we versus a me right only then only then is it possible to do all the other things we talk about doing and so you so you went to the program in portugal and this was your first time meditating how old were you at that time <laughs> i was 43 I was 43. Okay. I took my first meditation course uh here in Boulder, Colorado at the Shambhala Center and I was Beautiful. I was 29. So still not young, but but uh 14 years 14 years ahead of of you life uh in term in terms of uh that that uh, life cycle. Now, then I know that meditation became a big part of your life. You've done sessions with Sadhguru, you've done uh Vipassana meditation, So how did you get into all that and 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 what changed in your life when you started meditating? Yeah, look, I think at the heart of it what shifts is your ability to be able to sit in tension. Right? To be able to be aware. And as I and I tuned into meditation, but I also did a lot of spiritual readings, right? I read Alex I read the Bible, I read the Quran, I read all the yoga sutras, I read many of the Buddhist texts, I read Taoism, I read Stoicism, right? All of these, these are like thousands of years we've known about these things. We've known about meditation, prayer. Um, you know, they're every one of them. It's there the power of it. But I started to experience it rather than just read about it, right? my vipassana experience in particular was just magical you know we talk before then you know my engineering mind um this whole download thing you know we talk about oh it's just you know the, i just this just came to me by the way the sunflower was a download i was by myself in the midst of covid in breckenridge many people thought it was weird that i would leave my family behind and just go be a week by myself in a cabin and in one of those meditations that flower just came to me in 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 its perfect form with every practice It was like this is how all of this learning you've been doing comes together. The idea behind Rewire, this program, this one-year journey, based in micro practices, five-minute things that can change our life, came to me in Vipassana. When you tune into silence, only then can you hear the whispers, and they are whispers of the universe, of the wisdom. otherwise all we hear is our ego constantly chattering and telling us how we are not enough right and that 
was the power of meditation. That's what the power of meditation, Alex, um, unlocked for me. That was the power of meditation that unlocked for me. And my dear friends, for those who are entrepreneurs right now, you might say, well, that's wonderful, Ashish. Uh, and Alex, that's great that you did this at 29. I am 43 right now. I'm 44. I've got family responsibilities. I got a bunch of stuff, man. Like I don't have time to do this. Wonderful. I don't have time to do meditation. We actually designed a micro practice, which is literally five minutes. And so if all you take away from this podcast is this, do this tomorrow. Find five, find five one minute breaks in your day. Everybody can do that, right? Do we agree? Everybody has one, five one minutes. And in that, on that one minute, all I want you to do is stop what you're doing, plant your feet, close your eyes, and just take six mindful breaths. Follow your breath in, letting your belly expand and breathe out. Feeling the air leave you, feeling your body relax and contract. Just do that five times in a day. And notice the effect of that on your level of stress at the end of the day, the level of energy that you might have left at the end of the day, and just your ability, clarity of how you think right after that practice. If you want to realize how impactful and where this comes from and why should we do it, search up the recent study on Microsoft and back-to-back -back meetings. And you can see what happens to our brain and stress levels when we go back-to-back -back in meetings without breaks versus with breaks. And what is meditation? Meditation is nothing but paying attention on purpose at the present moment without judgment. Right? We can all do that for one minute. And if we do that, just like that, you will start to realize the power and you'll start to do more of it. I don't need to tell you to go after that from one minute to find the five minutes. And then from five minutes to 10 and 15, etc. Where today I wake up every morning and whether I do anything else or not, I sit for 15 to 45 minutes every morning and I meditate. Right. I always do that, but I didn't get there by starting with 30 and 45 minutes and beating myself up for failing to do it. You start one minute at a time. Do it five times. You know, you can start before your day, you open your computer, you do a minute, 10, 10, 30, do once, right after lunch, do a minute, 430. And then just before you walk into your home, use that one minute to leave the work and connect back fully present with those you love your family, they're waiting for you. And we can just use that minute to shed whatever worries we're carrying, right? And just tune in. Just do yeah. that. And I would love to hear from you what impact you got from it. Yeah. The other person that's waiting for you is you. Yes. Because we get, we get all stuck in here. And we, you know, we sit there and we design everything and we question everything. We worry about everything and we project and all this stuff. And we never really take the time to just, to just properly be. Just be, just be, you know, it's interesting, you know, Alex, that the word that comes up for me, I don't know who I heard this from. So we'll quote it to anonymous. He said, you know, if aliens observed us, right? If aliens came and observed us, I don't think they would call us human beings. 
they would call us human doings because we never like to just be. Every other animal, other than, you know, when they're looking for food or right, or they're mating or they're sleeping, they're happy to just be. We cannot. We don't like being. Even on vacations, we have to plan the heck out. We have to be moving. We have to be doing something. Otherwise, there is, why waste time? I mean, what do you mean, why waste time? What, what else is there, right? Just be. Yeah. And so these practices, uh, awareness, meditation, all, all the many things that you have in the book are related to, to resetting the internal environment as, as I think about it. And, and in the book, you talk about, yes. you talk about this concept of a set point and about how happiness is very much derived from our set point. So basically, where are we? Everyone thinks that I'll be happy when this happens. So as an entrepreneur, I'm, I might think, Oh, I'll be happy when I raise a series A. I'll be happy when I sign a million dollar customer. I'll be happy when I sell my company for 50 million bucks or whatever it is. And then I'll let myself be happy as opposed to, well, how can I get to happiness now? And so you, you quote something like 50% of your happiness is based on your, your set point. What's that all about? Yeah. So this was the work that was done by Professor Sonia Lubomirsky, um, one of the most preeminent researchers on happiness. And what she found in her research was that, you know, all of us have a set point, Alex. Okay. We all have a set point. You know, the, you know how some people always see the, the bright, you know, they see it, you know, you can see the, at the, the light and the clouds and others just see the dark cloud. We all have a certain set point. And I mean, oftentimes, you know, it's genetics, it's generational. Uh, Amy Fox talks and uh, Thomas Hubel talk a lot about a lot of the collective trauma that sometimes we carry forward generation to generation. It provides an outlook, right? But that's, that's only half of it, right? The other 10% is uh, circumstantial. By the way, that's what most of us think is drives most of it. We chase and by its very nature, the moment we get there, we don't realize that our brains have this hedonic adaptation processes by which the moment I get promoted, now all of a sudden that promotion doesn't mean anything. Six, 12 months later, I'm looking for the next thing. So we're always chasing. That's why those who pursue happiness never get there. 10% is circumstantial. I have an accident, something else happens, right? I feel a temporary blip. But 40% is based on what we choose to do and what we choose to pay attention to. That 40% is what this hardwired for happiness practices and all the other amazing work that other happiness researchers have done, starting with the work of Dr. Marty Seligman, the father of positive psychology, who fundamentally changed the direction of psychology from studying diseases to studying the conditions for flourishing and thriving in 2000. That's what this work is about. It's about that 40% that we control. And think about the power of that. You, are no, you don't control the 50. You don't control the 10. But that 10, you know, unless you're really born with a 10% scale, right? Think about most of the time we can choose to be happier. The word is happier. We can choose to be anti-fragile. It's not about being happy or unhappy. It's about being happier. It's about being able to to bounce forward. Okay. So thanks for clarifying my thinking on that. I, I thought we were, I thought this was working at the set point level. And what you're saying is there's a certain set point regardless that's sort of native within all of us, inherent within all of us. And then we've got 10% is how we respond to the things that are happening on a daily basis. What's are happening they, to us? Yeah. Circumstantial. 
Okay. And then the 40% is the muscle that I'm building. And can I That's increase exactly the right. muscle? Okay. Yeah. Okay, exactly. Got it. got it. Well, um, I took the Oxford happiness questionnaire, uh, as part of prepping for yep. this discussion. So that's something that you got in, in the book and, and for, Listeners who are not aware, the Oxford Happiness Questionnaire is 29 questions uh, which are given to you to gauge your sense of happiness. And some of them are positive questions and some of them are negative questions. So some of them are clearly indicators of that you want to be high and some of them you want the, the indicators actually to be to be low. And then you get a score from one out of six. And the point isn't to have a six, I don't think. I don't think the point is to be a six. I think the point is to say where am I? Like, and understand what is what does reality yep. look like? Uh, my score from yesterday was four point eight, so I thought that was good. It seemed it seemed according to the research that the average is four point three, so I was a little bit happier than average yesterday. Yep. And now I have a tool that I can go back and reflect on over time to see how it's moving, and some of it will undoubtedly be guided by day to day events. Uh, but hopefully a lot of it then is just turning into the muscle that I'm building in that 40% of the things that I can control. So that's my, that's my hope. How have you seen people use that tool of this Oxford happiness questionnaire? And like, have you done it yourself? I assume. And, and what do you, I what have, have you, and I've measured measure? it over time. Yeah. I've measured it over time. And I think the beauty is exactly that. And Alex, you know, a lot of people say, well, I did it. You know, I'm higher than average. I'm good. That's not the point of it. It is that we can grow, right? Carol Dweck's work, growth mindset. That 40% is a muscle. Goes back. Our brains are going to keep us unhappy. Look, our brains aren't designed to keep us happy. Our brains are designed to make us survive, right? Um, always push for what's not right. So if we want to actually be happy, we have to work at it. We have to do all of these elements. Um, so yeah, for me, I use it every now and then I go back. There are several of those scales. We're actually going to build our own shortly. 10 questions because life is short. We want to bring it smaller and smaller. I think we've tuned into that. We're creating that for folks. But yeah, I go back to it. And friends, I'll tell you this because I know I know the entrepreneur life. I'm living it. <laughs> There's not many hours. And you might go, yeah, this is great, but this is one additional thing. And I, I don't have time to do one additional thing. My invitation is the following. There is a way to integrate these practices into your work every day. And if there were um, four that I would say the following, always tune into your purpose and connect it to the people who work for you. Make that be the way you attract people. Biggest driver of happiness. Secondly, you know, you want to practice gratitude, empathy, compassion, optimism, our practices uh, four and practices uh, six. Do it in how we interact with people every day. Thank them. Celebrate every moment, you know. Yes, you'll get to the Series A, but you're making progress every day. Yes, you'll release a product, but you're creating features and testing them every day, right? It is about, you can do that. You can create an energy positive environment, a net energy creating versus energy draining. Relationships. You know, 60% of Americans are lonely. Most CEOs feel alone. Tune into the con conscious entrepreneurs community. Tune into our happiness squad community. Find your people. You don't have to do this alone. 
And more importantly, you can create a community for your people. The biggest drivers of high performance is not the IQ of people you're going to get. It is not, are they your friends or not? It is not their technical expertise. Project Aristotle, it's all about psychological safety. That only comes from a deep level of trust. All of Gallup work, if you have friends at work, less chances you're going to leave. Higher chances you're going to show up, right, with your full self. So tune into that. Practice what's in our community and the work that Alex is doing with Conscious Entrepreneurs and we're doing. Bring it into your work. Make this a part of your work versus one additional thing you do outside. And then the last is all the things around stress and well-being. Look, stress, our bodies are designed for stress. They are designed for stress. Anybody who does strength training, how do you get stronger? You put pressure on your, right, on your muscles. They break down. If you give them the right nutrition and the right break, recovery time, they get stronger. You don't give it. They will get weaker and you won't be able to do what you want to do. You have an injury. Build in coping into your days. Build in those coping periods, those periods where we recover. And if you do, you can make stress into an ally. You don't have to avoid stress. If you don't create a certain pressure, you will not get to the performance you want. So there is a way, dear friends, to live into this work at your work. Don't keep it for mornings before you, you know, or evenings. Do it as part of your team. And I promise you, you will be more productive. You will be more profitable. You will be more successful in no matter what you do. You can make happiness your competitive edge. Wonderful summary. Thank you. Yeah. So Ashish, as as we're wrapping up here, I'd like to get your thoughts on a few things. You are living the entrepreneur life, uh, new post McKinsey life. And I'd love to hear what is your definition of a conscious entrepreneur? Yeah, beautiful. It's three things, Alex. I think one, and I'll highlight it in terms of a mind, thought, heart, and spirit. It's a mindset of abundance versus scarcity. Entrepreneur is a scrappy life that is never enough. Don't be that. Tune into the abundance. Tune into connection. There is so many around here who you can tune in to support you and will give. And Boulder is such a beautiful community for that. The second is heart. It's not the me, it's the we. Community, the power of community. Connect, give and receive love. And and truly that is a big part of it. A conscious entrepreneur is all about the we. And we not just for the employees, but for all the stakeholders. Truly thinking about how do we grow the pie? How do we create more value versus how we split the pie? And the spirit, always tuning into our why. What is our bigger why beyond making money? In what way do we, through our offering, want to make a difference in the world? That is the definition of conscious entrepreneur. Operating from a higher level of heart, mind, and spirit. Thank you. And what are your personal practices? You sort of hinted at some of them, but what do you do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis for yourself? Yeah. So look, I think there are three that are the cornerstone. 
there are all of these that I actually do during the during the week and day because they have now become habits. You know, Alex, repetition, small moments, five years. I start with one practice at a time and they become a habit. And once they become a habit, they embody, right? 60 to 90% of what we do every day is habitual. So consciously doing nine, incredibly hard. Habitually doing nine, super easy. But the three that are the, they've been the biggest impact for me that I never forget. One is gratitude. Before I go to bed, I always bring to life the three things that happened today that were positive, that I'm grateful for. And gratitude is what I wake up with every morning. So that's a huge practice. The second, as I mentioned, was the practice of mindfulness. Even if I take five minutes, I always take the time in the mornings, you know, on the best days at 60 minutes, I will choose the time to be mindful and to be truly present. That's number two. And the third, my dear friend, is the power of community. Uh, I always call people on their birthdays. Uh, many of them sometimes get surprised because we might not have talked or we haven't worked together or like 15 years and like, oh my God, you still call me. We haven't worked together in 15 years, but every birthday I get a call from you. In fact, if sometime I miss, they call me. They're like, hey, you didn't call me this birthday. What happened? Right. It's like, it's like everybody calls it. No, not everybody calls everybody on a birthday. But, uh, but you know, to me, those three always community and connection. Um, those are the three, Alex, that play front and center role in my life. And of course, awareness. We are evolving. We are growing. We are changing. We are learning. You know, to me, that's always present, but that's also what arises through mindfulness, right? We, we always can tune into how we are changing. Wonderful. And I know that in your preparations for building Happiness Squad and for writing Hardwired for Happiness, you said you read 625 books or something. So, yeah. you know, you're, you are someone who's done, you, you've literally done the work and you've done uh, meditation programs and you've done offsites and you've done workshops and so on. And the question that I have is, what are the resources that you draw on the most? And if someone is trying to get to, you know, deeper in self-awareness and they're trying to get to these uh, three elements of the conscious entrepreneur, the, the head, the heart, the spirit that you were just talking about, you know, what do you most recommend? And I'm going to assume that you're going to recommend your book. Uh, and on, I guess the question is on top of your yes. book, which has got a lot of resources, what else have you really been inspired by? Yeah, no, beautiful. Look, we are, um, you know, the hardwired for happiness. This is the feedback I've consistently received from people is because it integrates and draws on so many. You can just go there and there is a lot that you'll get. We also have a podcast, the happiness squad podcast, where we're constantly, you know, all tuning into this topic of happiness, right? Um, so you'll hear a lot from that, but I will be remiss to highlight three books that can be hugely impactful. And they come from three very different places, okay? Because there are tons of great books. The first is a book called Inner Engineering by Sadhguru, one of the mystics who's kind of dedicated his whole life uh, to helping elevate consciousness. And I love it because, you know, he's the funniest guy you'll ever meet. He's the funniest spiritual teacher you'll ever meet. Uh, and uh, what I love about it is he says, you know, called it inner engineering. He says, we are the most sophisticated machine that ever walked on the planet. For every machine, there's a manual. Have you learned and picked up the manual for your own self? Hence, inner engineering. Beautiful. The second book that I would invite you to read 
is the book by Clay Christensen, How Will You Measure Your Life? Right? It's written from a strategy point of view, and he highlights how the strategic decisions we make and the way we make them often don't serve us in our life. And he talks about, so that was, that's had a profound impact on me. And I know it will. It's a very easy read. Yeah. And then the third one, which is one of my favorites, it is a reading meditation is the book. You are here by Thich Nathan. You are here. Those three books are the books that I would recommend you pick up and you read. Like I have that book, Alex, sitting right uh, where I have my tea and I'll just pick it up, you know, uh, and I'll just read two pages from it. And every time I read it, I notice how my heart beat just slows down. I feel a level of calmness because the words itself have that magic. Fantastic. What a, what a great set of resources. Well, thank you so much, Ashish Katari, for, for being here. I am really impressed and inspired by you and your journey and the way you've gone through a life with intention and the way that you are now bringing your gifts and your insights to the world. And I know that it's hard to leave a big fancy corporate job and go out on your own and, and do your own thing. And congratulations to you for doing that. And uh, I'm a huge supporter of Happiness Squad. Love the podcast that you do. Love the book that you've written and really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. So thanks so much for being here today. Well, Alex, thank you, my dear friend, for all the work that you're doing. This is so needed in the world because collectively together, as we rewire ourselves, we can create a kinder, gentler world. You know, we can create, we can get out of the crisis that we are creating in the out there, but it needs to start in here. So thank you for getting the community together, holding the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit, keeping this work alive. So grateful for you. Super. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur. If you're ready to go deeper into working on yourself, check out the upcoming events, articles, and resources on our website, which is ConsciousEntrepreneur.us. I'd also really like to thank the team at Hivecast for producing this episode. If you run a podcast and are looking for an awesome, full-service production company, make sure to check out Hivecast. Hivecast. 